beautiful number choir. Thank you so much for that reminder. Open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our study for this little epistle, this little letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, the believers there. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at uh, some verses there in just a moment. Dwight Pentecost and his book on Philippians called The Joy of Living tells us about a church in Texas that was having some major trouble. He writes, a congregation in a certain church in Dallas was at one time divided. The division became so serious that each faction entered a lawsuit against the other to dispossess it from the church and to claim the church property for itself. The litigation came into the newspapers and many people watched the court proceedings with high interest. The judge finally ruled it was not in the province of the civil court to settle this matter until it had first been aired before the church courts. So the matter was referred to the higher authorities in the denomination. Eventually, a church court assembled to hear both sides of the case. Later, that court made its decision and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. And he writes, it was reported in the newspaper for all of Dallas to read that in tracing this squabble to its source, the church court found the trouble began when an elder at a church dinner received a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. And Pentecost closed that particular section by writing, can you imagine what a good time the people of Dallas had laughing at Jesus Christ on that occasion? Leslie Flynn, in his book with the dubious title, Great Church Fights, sounds like a great read, doesn't it? Great Church Fights, quotes a story from a Welsh newspaper about a church that was looking for a new pastor. He writes, yesterday... The two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns and the congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return home. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Last night, one of the groups called a Let's Be Friends meeting. It broke up in an argument. I don't guess one of the two songs they sang that morning was blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. I'm sorry, but these stories would be funny if they were not so sad. These are not fictional accounts. These are things that actually happened in places, in churches that proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled this morning's message. The right fist of fellowship, the right fist of fellowship, a phrase that appeared in Sam Gordon's book on Philippians. And it caught my eye, I think, because it's so ludicrous. 
We can understand the right hand of fellowship. We know what that is. But what about the right fist of fellowship? Now, thankfully, the church in Philippi was nowhere near reaching the depths that the before mentioned churches had reached. It was a great church, but it was not a perfect church. By the way, there are no perfect churches. Mark that down. Get that. You get nothing else. If you come in this morning and and you think, well, I found a perfect church. I'm sorry you didn't. We're not. We're a church made up of imperfect people that love and serve a perfect God, a perfect Savior. John MacArthur said the church at Philippi was, for the most part, theologically sound, devoted, moral, loving, zealous, courageous, prayerful and generous. And I think that's a wonderful description of any church. And while that's true, it faced a danger from within its own midst, a danger in which no church is immune, a danger that we must guard against the danger of disunity. And hear me, beloved, it could happen here. It could happen in this church. We must guard against it. We must watch out for it. We must be careful about it. To think about a church splitting and separating and literally dragging the name of Jesus through the mud over an elder getting a smaller portion of ham than a child. God forbid something that, be kind here, that ridiculous would separate a church. Now, the church of Philippi was a wonderful church, but there were there was apparently two ladies who were having a disagreement. Paul names these two ladies by name now in chapter four and verse two. He says there, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So he mentions these ladies by name. We don't know what the disagreement was about. We don't know what they were uh, fussing about, but they were having a disagreement. Now, we've already studied chapter one. And in chapter one, Paul's already talked about the theme of unity. Look at verse 27 of chapter one. Only that your conversation, your behavior, your lifestyle, your citizenship as a, a citizen of heaven be as becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see your else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast. Watch this in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He mentions unity there. Now, in chapter two, he's going to really develop that theme of unity. He's going to develop that here just so we get our bearings. Now, we think about the book as a whole. Chapter one, if we if we use Ironside's uh, uh, outline was all about Christ as the believer's life for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain the believer's life. Now, chapter two is all about Christ as the believer's example, our example. And as we look at these verses here, we're going to look at the first four in chapter two today. Let me give you the big picture. okay? so you know where we're going. The big picture in chapter two is about the theme, of course, of unity and humility. And in the first four verses we're going to study today, he lays down those principles. And then after that, he gives us examples of folks who displayed those particular traits and characteristics. The first of all, he gives us the perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we'll see Paul himself as an example. Then we'll see Timothy as an example. And then we'll see a fellow I'm looking forward to studying with you named Epaphroditus. And we'll learn more about Epaphroditus coming up later. 
Chapter two is considered by many the high mark of the book. Of course, because you come down to verse five, it talks about let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And we have that focus upon Christ and his wonderfulness there. But many believe the key verse is, is verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So now you have the big picture. Unity, humility. We're going to study the principles today, and then we'll look at some examples. But let's go ahead and read those first four verses. If you have your copy of the New Testament, begin looking with me there in chapter 2 of Philippians, beginning at verse 1. Now remember, as we read this, beloved, God is speaking to us. Don't forget that. God is speaking to us through his word today. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Heavenly Father, speak through your messenger today. Use me to be a blessing and a help, challenge and encourage, convict and convert according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. As we study these first four verses here, beloved, I want you to first of all look with me at at what we have in Christ. Look at what we have in Christ. Look back at verse one. You'll notice the word therefore. It connects it back to chapter one. Now, remember, when Paul wrote the letter of Philippians, he did not divide up the letter in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four and give you verse divisions. That was done later to help us. He's been talking about unity there in chapter one, verse 27. He continues coming down here and he begins addressing that subject again in chapter two. Now, one writer said some Christians in Philippi, if they were human at all, may have been tempted to ask why. Why should they be unified? And then others would ask the question, how can we be unified? And here we're going to find out that Paul addresses those questions. Why are we to be unified and how are we to be unified? He gives the basis here in verses one through four. And it begins with that word. If there are four things mentioned here, if, 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 if. Now, we think about the word if in a different light than what's meant here. We think about the if of doubt. This is not the if of doubt. This is the if of argument. In other words, you could translate Verse one in this way, you could use the word sense or in view of the fact. In other words, these things are certain. These things are true. There's not a doubt about them. We can read it like this. Since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the spirit, since there are bowels and mercies, these things are true about believers These things are true about us who know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the things we have in Christ. Four are mentioned in particular in verse one. Let's look at them together. First of all, if or since there be consolation in Christ. Consolation is the idea of encouragement. It's the encouragement of Christ. 
coming alongside for comfort, for counsel, for encouragement. And it even carries the idea of exhortation, exhorting someone. Now listen, we're not asked to be united on our own. We're not asked to be humble on our own. This is not being strong and, and manly and trying our best. We have in Christ consolation. We have comfort. We have encouragement. We have exhortation. We have Christ. The key here is that we're in Christ. Now, the Lord would say in John fourteen sixteen these words. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. That other comforter, of course, was the Holy Spirit of God. The comforter mentioned there is the Holy Spirit of God. And we know we have as believers the indwelling spirit, the spirit of God. Encouragement, comfort in Christ, consolation in Christ. We have that. Notice next. Comfort of love, the comfort of love. There are different types of love. There's eros or erotic love. There's uh, Philadelphia or uh, phileo. There's uh, brotherly love. This is agape love. This is Jesus's love. This is selfless love. This is sacrificial love. We love him because he first loved us. And beloved, we're to love other people because Jesus loves us. We love Jesus and we're to love others like Jesus loves others. He loved others so much. He loved us so much that he came and willingly, voluntarily laid down his life on the cross. He says, be united. Be unified, not based just upon your own self. Listen, you have the comfort of Christ. You have the comfort of love. Notice thirdly there, there, the fellowship of the Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit. What's that about, preacher? We understand it to refer to the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Spirit. The fellowship, they're having the idea of close relationship, communion, association. We're together in the Spirit of God. We're together in the family of God. We didn't sing it today, but we often do. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God as we're born into that family, as the Holy Spirit uh, puts us in the body of Christ. So we have these things. Now, look, notice next there. Bowels and mercies. Now, that's the way the King James has it. Your version may have it a little bit differently. We don't often think about things in this regard in our day. They understood the bowels to be the seat of the emotion. Okay, we would say what heart. I love you with all my heart, because if you said I love you with all my bowels, that would be taken somewhat differently. (laughs) But to them, that's what they were meaning. It was the seat of the emotions. So this idea here is I have tender compassion, tender feelings for you, for one another as well. So look at what we have here. All these things are true. We have consolation in Christ. We have comfort of love. We have fellowship of the spirit. We have bowels and mercy that is tender, compassionate feelings. All these things are true. All these things we have in Christ. The Philippians had them. We have them. And they form the basis of the why. When Paul says, listen, be unified. Stand fast in one spirit, one mind, one accord. Be together. Why? Because you're in Christ. And you have these things in Christ. Listen, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we don't have these things. Now, someone may be here today, maybe for the very first time. Maybe you've been here many days. Maybe you've been here all your life. But you don't really know Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the Bible tells us to repent. To turn to God from our sin and our sinful ways. To trust Christ to Christ alone. And friend, if you're here today, you've never done that. Let me encourage you to do that. To realize and recognize that you are a sinner. All have sinned. We all have that in common. There is none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus, God in the flesh, he lived a sinless, perfect life. Laid down his life on an old rickety cross and shed his blood for you and for me. He was buried and rose again victorious that we might have life. And friend, if you don't have that life, I want to encourage you to repent and trust Jesus today. And enter in into this consolation we have in Christ, this comfort of love, the fellowship of the spirit and these tender, compassionate feelings that we have one for another. Those of us who are in Christ. Now, we look here at what we have in Christ. Let's notice next what we how we should live in Christ. Look at how we should live in Christ. Very simply, first of all, we look at verse two, it says, fulfill ye my joy. That you be like-minded, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We should live a life of unity. You say, we already said that. Yeah, I have, but we're going to look at it more specifically here. Now, Paul says here, fulfill ye my joy. This is a personal request from Paul. Remember the founding of the church of Philippi back in Acts 16. Paul comes in. Goes through much heartache and hardship as people are converted and they're put in the, the, the jail there. There's even the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer and, and uh, they love Paul and Paul loves them. And Paul says, look, fulfill ye my joy. Fulfill means to fill up. I've got joy, but I want you to fill it up. I want you to finish it. I want my joy to be overflowing for you. He loved them. We saw that all throughout the first chapter. Paul has joy because of the Philippians, but he wants them to fill up his joy by being united. Now, is that a right request for Paul to make? I believe it is. Because Paul is their spiritual leader. Uh, think about what 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Hebrews 13, 17 says it this way. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Paul wanted his joy to be full. He wanted to stand before the judgment seat of Christ realizing that the Philippians, they loved one another. They loved Jesus. They were in joy together. They were united Paul says, listen, I'm making a personal request. Be together. Be united. Have unity. But really, beloved, what characterizes a life of unity? It's one thing to say we should live a life of unity. What does that mean? Well, Paul goes again. He mentions four things here. Notice there in verse two, like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So to have the same mind, same love, be of one accord and one mind. Now, what does that mean? Layman Strauss helps the same mind, first of all. They're to set before them the same goals 
and contemplate the same things and be unanimous in their decisions. In other words, they have one goal or a set of goals and they're together. They have the same mind. They're like minded in those goals. The same love. That is, there must be unity and affection. He says for God's word, for God's work, for God's workmen. And most certainly we must share God's love for the world of lost mankind. One accord. What does that mean? That doesn't mean it's a Honda. They're not going to be in one Honda. But it has the idea of the hearts of the believers are to be knit together. And they have mutually constrained by the same urge and desire. They're in one accord. They're in harmony. And then one mind. They're to have one mind. And he's already said, of course, what? You'd be like-minded. And he says one mind. Strauss says the idea is not so much of one's intellectual apprehension as of one's mental attitude. It's not the difference of viewpoint. Listen, it's not the difference of viewpoint that makes disunity among us, but rather a wrong attitude toward others whose viewpoint differs from our own. Think about that for a moment. How do we respond when a brother or sister, they don't agree with us? How do we respond? Strauss says if we were more willing to face the problem from our brother's viewpoint, there'd be fewer differences among us. We know we need unity. We know we need it. But what is it exactly? Well, he's talked about four things there. But I love how Sam Gordon explained it in his commentary as well. Paul's impassioned plea is for unity, not, listen, not uniformity. There's a subtle difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is the result of pressure from without. It's when people want us to do things the way they do it. Be like me, do it my way, where we dress alike and look alike and sound alike and think alike and act alike. And when that happens, he says, we become spiritual clones. I'm so thankful, beloved, that we're not all exactly alike. How boring would that be if everybody here looked exactly alike and talked alike and sounded alike? Wow. But on the other hand, unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. It means to be on the same team, going for the same goals, for the benefit of one another. And that's what we are. We're on the same team, going for the same goals. We're in the same family as Christians. We're to be unified. We're different and we're meant to be different. But we can still be one. It's unity in diversity. Think about that for a moment. Is that possible? Unity in diversity. Well, you know what? We see an example, a wonderful example of unity and diversity. And I think pretty much everybody here has two of those. It's your hand. Hold up your hand for a moment and look at it. If you haven't had any accidents or whatever, you're probably going to find if you were born with five fingers, you're going to find a hand there with five fingers. Look at those fingers for a moment. Some of you are thinking maybe you need to wash your hands. It should have before you came to church. But anyway, I notice a thumb. I notice four other fingers. They look different, different lengths, different strengths, different in so many ways, different ways they move and come together. But they all make up what? The hand and there is unity and diversity, not all thumbs, not all pinkies, but unity and diversity. And imagine what's able to be accomplished. 
through that unity and diversity. On the main things, we must agree. On the gospel, on the word of God, on the doctrines of the faith, on the resurrection of Christ, the inerrancy of scripture, those things, those main things. We must agree. There'll be no disunity among those things. But listen, on the minor things, we can agree to disagree agreeably. You may see some things in a different light than I see them. You may do some things that feel freedom in doing them that I do not and vice versa. Let's not major on the minors. Let's not spend all our time measuring the size of our ham portions at homecoming. Let's major on the major, not the minor. We should live a life of unity. We're all different. You can look at our individual dress and selection of ties and blouses and things and see we have a different taste, different preferences, those sorts of things. But we're to be united in Christ, part of the family of God. United, agreeing on the main things. And if we disagree on the minor things, we disagree agreeably. We should live a life of unity, but then notice we should also live a life of humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, listen. Humility is a difficult subject, isn't it? Because the moment you start boasting that you have it, you've lost it. Sometimes it's hard to get our arms around humility. We can't stand and say, I want to praise the Lord that I'm, I'm humble and proud of it. We, we just can't do that. You've lost it. Now, I don't want you to speak out loud, but in your own mind, think about a definition for humility. Just in your own mind, get a definition of humility. You got it? Now, let me give you two definitions I ran across, and you compare these with what you just thought of. The first is from Chuck Swindoll. Humility, listen, humility is not how you dress. It is not the money you make. It is not where you live. It's not what you drive. It's not even how you look. We're never once commanded by God to look humble. Humility is an attitude. It is an attitude of the heart, an attitude of the mind. It is a knowing your proper place. Never talking down or looking down because someone may be of a financial level less than yours. It is knowing your role and fulfilling it for God's glory and praise. That's one thought. Let me give you a different one. And a complimentary one. Sam Gordon's words are just as good. Listen. A humble person is someone who accepts himself or implied herself for who he or she is. He is someone who is grateful to God for all that he has done for him. He is an individual, listen, who rightly assesses the value of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to him. He will not overestimate himself and thereby fall into the snare of pride. Neither will he underestimate himself and be caught in the trap of false humility. He will be a balanced outlook, a Christ-like attitude. Now, I don't know what your definition was, but I hope it lined up with those. Humility is not walking around looking at the floor. 
humility is recognizing who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, being grateful for what God has given to you, but at the same time not overestimating nor underestimating yourself. Not having shameful pride or false humility. It's having a balanced outlook of who you truly are. And we'll see later having a preference for the preferential treatment of others. Ronald Reagan showed what humility was. He was recovering in the hospital from the gunshot wound he received during the assassination attempt. And just days after surgery, here he is, the leader of the free world, the leader, the president of the United States, just a few days after surgery, where they repaired those life-threatening injuries. His aides walked in and discovered him on his hands and knees in the hospital room, wiping water from the floor. You know why he was doing that? He was worried that his nurse would get in trouble. Beloved, that is humility. That's humility. Now, in this idea of humility, let's get a little more practical, a little more specific. We're told in this passage what we're not to do and what we are to do. Now, stick with me. Look at verse three. Here's what we're not to do. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Now, notice the words, if you're looking in King James, the words let and be done are italicized. They were added by the translators to help us in understanding. Let's drop them for a moment. And read it without them. Nothing through strife or vainglory. Nothing through strife or vainglory. What we're not to do. Now, strife is the idea of selfish ambition or partisanship. Boy, that puts it in the proper light, doesn't it? Bring politics in it and different parties. It's looking out for yourself and your own interest. Vainglory means empty glory or empty pride. And notice the word nothing. Not just some things, not just church things, not just what Matt calls spiritual things. Nothing through strife or vainglory. Nothing done through selfish ambition or empty pride. Now, does this not go contrary to what the world teaches us? The world says what? Look out for yourself. Look out for your own. Be selfish. Be self-centered. Make something of yourself. Look out for yourself. Me and mine and nobody else. No. No. Nothing done through strife or vain glory. And this does not come naturally. This comes supernaturally. Why? Because we are in Christ. He's the greatest example of this. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We'll study it probably next week, God willing. But he let the splendors of heaven to come and live as a man among men, the God man, and lay down his life on a cross for you and for me. Humility. Nothing through strife or vainglory. That's what we're not to do. Notice what we are to do. Look at verse three again. But in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Esteem means regard, regard others. One scholar said he has the idea of a carefully thought out conclusion based on truth. Not pretending others are better than you, but actually believing it. Better is the idea of superior in rank. Superior in rank. And this doesn't come naturally. We don't say, well, all, they're all better than I They're all better than I am. I'm, I'm the worst of the lot. No, we say, well, they might be a little bit better, but I'm a whole lot better than they are. 
No, he says esteem others better. Now, let me ask you a question. What if you really are more gifted than someone else? I mean, you really are. <laughs> if Michael Jordan and I had a basketball game this afternoon, 22 of us, I'm going to be honest with you, beloved. It's not hard for me to esteem him better than I am. Most of you are better than I am in basketball. Hands down, with one hand tied behind your back. So if you just say, oh, well, right, he's a, he's, a, he's a better basketball player than I am, that'd be a lie. That'd be false humility. John Phillips helps us. Listen, Paul was not saying that we should consider everyone else to be more gifted or more capable than we are. It's a false humility that depreciates any acknowledgement of one's gifts. To pretend not to have abilities we know we do have is not humility, but hypocrisy. If we esteem others better than ourselves, we do not consider everyone else to be superior to ourselves, but we do want everyone else to have preferential treatment. Humility is concern for the advancement of others. Do you get the idea there? It's not denying that God has gifted you. It's not denying you have certain gifts and abilities. But it's saying, I want others to be advanced. I want others to be lifted up. I want others to have preferential treatment. Sticking with basketball for a moment, John Wooden, the former basketball coach of the UCLA Bruins basketball team, gives this helpful advice. It would be good for all of us to remember it. Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be thankful. Conceit is self-given. Be careful. That's worth remembering. Talent is God-given. Be humble. Fame is man-given. Be thankful. But conceit is self-given. Be careful. We're to esteem, regard others superior in rank. Having the preferential treatment. Esteem others better than ourselves. Not just pretending, believing that. We do that through Christ. But then notice what else we're to do. We're to be concerned about others. Look at verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Others. The key word there is others. Be concerned about others. This, of course, is living a life that's not selfish. This is unselfishness. The key word is others. And I want you to notice in this in this passage today, many of these points, they overlap and they complement and they strengthen one another. Be concerned with others. That, that's that's kind of contrary to our natural sinful state, isn't it? <laughs> you look out for yourself, buddy. I'm worried about myself, my family, my stuff. We don't do this through our own power. We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we're in Christ. Unity, humility, unselfishness. Now let me ask you something. If we live that way in our daily lives, in our families, in our church, what would our church look like? If we truly did nothing out of strife, selfish ambition, For our own empty pride, our vain, empty pride. If we truly wanted others to have preferential treatment, to esteem others better than ourselves. And we were looking out for others besides ourselves. What would our church look like? 
I can guarantee you one thing. We would not be extending the right fist of fellowship. We'd be extending the right hand of fellowship. Aesop tells us there were four bulls who were great friends. And he said they went everywhere together, these four bulls. They fed together, laid down together, rested together, always kept close to each other. So if any danger came, they could all face it together. Now, there was a lion who was determined to have them, but he could not get at them singly. He was a match for any one of them alone, but he could not defeat all four of them. So this lion used to watch for his opportunity with these four bulls. And when one bull would kind of lag behind a little bit, the others, as he grazed, this lion would slink up and whisper that the other bulls, bulls had been saying unkind things about him. And this he kept on doing. And at last, these four bull friends became uneasy. You see, each one of them thought that the other bulls were plotting against them. And you know what happened? Finally, there was no trust among them. And these four bulls went off by themselves and their friendship was broken. This is exactly what the lion wanted. You know why? Because one by one, the lion killed them and had four good meals. Now, that's a fable from Aesop. But, you know, as I read that, I couldn't help but think of a verse of Scripture where it says in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as what? A roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. He would love to cause disunity in this church. He would love to bring disunity in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your home. He would love to destroy, to kill, to steal. He's our adversary. He would love to stir up strife and dissension and turmoil in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our church. So we must be sober. We must be vigilant. We must be on guard. We must recognize the danger and keep our eyes open. Lest he bring us to where those other churches were. Arguing and fussing while the world laughs at the name of Jesus. We must lean hard on our consolation in Christ. We must be spirit filled believers. We must submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. We must remember what we have in Christ. And how we're to live in Christ. And we must practice what this passage tells us. 
We must be like-minded, the same love, one accord, one mind, no selfish ambition, no empty pride, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves, looking out for one another because we love one another because we are in Christ. May God help us. May God help us. May God help us. Is my prayer. Father, we love you. We honor and adore you. You are worthy of all praise. Thank you for what we have in Christ. Forgiveness of sin. The freedom of that sin. The hope of heaven. Eternal life. Being joint heirs and heirs with Christ. Father, I pray if anybody here today does not know Jesus, that they'll trust him today. This next moment, they'll repent, turning to God from their sin and place their faith in him. And I pray for those of us who already know Jesus as their savior. Lord, we oftentimes forget what we have in Christ. And yes, even how we're to live in Christ. Lord, we're fed daily in our world the exact opposite of what we study today. We're bombarded with it. Look out for self. It's all about us. But Lord, again, your word corrects us. It's not about us. It's about others. And ultimately, it's about you. Jesus. Father, we admit to you today. It is so easy to have that strife. That selfish ambition to... To build up ourselves. It is so easy to feast on that empty pride. That arrogance which is an offense to you. Help us and forgive us God. And Father help us truly to love one another. To esteem others. To want others to have preferential treatment. To want others to be exalted ultimately. For Jesus to be exalted. Lord, we would be remiss if we did not stop and thank you that we do have spiritual gifts that you've given to us. We do have talents and abilities. We we dare not deny those because you've given them to us. We might use them for your glory. So help us to make sure that they are used for your glory. Bless this invitation, I pray in the Savior's name. Amen and amen.